This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Welcome to Contra International, a podcast exploring the contradictions of disaster capitalism and the movements across the world seeking to challenge it. I'm Alice Kinghorn Gray. And I'm Ben Ray. Today we're joined by Pedro de Araujo and Itaitz Cancela to talk about Spanish left-wing politics in the context of the surprise election this Sunday on the 23rd of July. Pedro de Araujo is a postdoc researcher at UCL and author of Capitalism, Institutions and Social Orders, The Case of Contemporary Spain. And Icaiz Cancela is a journalist and author of Digital Utopias, Imagining the End of Capitalism, which was published this year as one of the first books of Verso Libros, a project which Icaiz is part of. He's also currently researching the decline of Europe, the structural changes of capitalism and its respective geopolitical context. So Pedro and Ikaitz have published a recent article in the New Left Review on the left in Spain and the upcoming Spanish election. Ben, you're based in the Basque Country at the moment. So what's caused this snap election and what's what's going on? So there was the local elections at the end of May where the left basically took a kick in. The the right wing party, the main right wing party, the PP, um, won the elections quite pretty comfortably. Um, this led the, the left-wing coalition government, the president, Pedro Sanchez, to decide that rather than waiting until the elections, which were supposed to be in November or December, that he would just go for it straight away. Because I think he thought that, you know, things would just get worse between now and then and he wanted to seize the initiative. Also, the PP has had to do lots of uh, agreements at the local level with Vox to govern in the the regional governments in Spain. And that's kind of, I think, I think Sanchez thought that's going to increase the focus on the fact that PP's doing deals with, with Vox, which is the most likely outcome of this election. Now it's going to be a PP and Vox election. And of course, a lot of people in Spain are, are very worried about the idea of Vox getting into power. It'd be the first far right ministers in power since the end of the, the Franco dictatorship. For the left, it's a fight to stay in power for um, PSOE and not Podemos, because it's not Podemos anymore. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. It's now Sumar, which is the main left-wing coalition. And obviously you have also the independence angle on this as well with Catalonia and the Basque Country. Um, the left-wing independence parties have been critically supporting the, the Spanish coalition government. So their role in this is interesting. So there's lots. There's lots of angles to this. It's going to be a very, very close election on Sunday. It's quite hard to predict. Most likely is that the right wing will win, but some polls say that the, the left might sneak through. So it's quite a high stakes election. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about and Pedro Ikaids have a lot of insight on all these issues. So let's get into it. Hi, Ikaids and Pedro. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. The great novelty of the Spanish election is Sumar, displacing Podemos as the new electoral umbrella of the Spanish left. Could you guys start by explaining where Sumar has come from and to what extent it's a break with the politics 
an ideology of Podemos and maybe to what extent it reflects continuity with that project? First of all, uh, thank you very much for, for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the relationship between Podemos and Sumar, uh, I think is a bit tricky. In, in, a, to, to, in a certain extent, Sumar is an electoral platform in which Podemos is now included together with many other parties, both nationwide and regional. And it emerges from a belief, both from Podemos side and from the rest of the radical left, or however you want to call it uh, in Spain, that the Podemos brand, at least, was uh, heavily damaged symbolically and culturally after all these years. So there was a great situation of disenchantment of potential voters of the radical left and a new face, a new flat needed to be offered in order to regain that hope evolution that characterizes Podemos at the first instance. There are very strong similarities between Podemos and Sumar, which we think they also constrain the horizon that Sumar is, is playing with. Uh, on the one hand, like in terms of organizational terms, they're both very lean organizations with very few rank and file membership, and very weak spread all over Spanish territory, over-reliant on the media and the image of its foremost leader, Jolanda uh, Diaz at the moment, which is currently the Ministry of Labor, and which is something very similar to what happened with Podemos early on and the image of public Iglesias. So in those sense, there is a quite a high degree of continuity and probably the rupture with Podemos might be more in the image that's being portrayed and the rupture with the more conflictive or struggling political stance that Podemos have been advancing so far. There's also, uh, apart from, from this, there's also an important distinction. So uh, both of them, both Podemos and Sumar come from the same place, uh, but the people that now are in Sumar are the people that previously were in Podemos, but with the Rajon uh, side. So there were like this division, this split in Podemos, like in the early, in the earliest after the first elections between Pablo Iglesias and Inigo Rajon. And uh, Pablo Iglesias won. They run like a party. They achieved like the govern. But now many of the people that were criticizing Podemos uh, when that division started are now in Sumar. So Rajon Inigo Rajon is leading the campaign of Sumar. Uh, one of the main advisors of Yolanda Diaz is coming also from the from Errejonistas. So it's uh, like this is not just organizational division, but it's also a bit theoretical one. Uh, Sumar is more reformist to say it that way. So they think that Spain is a reformist country. So it's a country of social democrats and they need to build a party for that population instead of returning to the radical origins of Podemos because the crisis is no longer there. The frustration, the the anger is no longer in the Spanish society, so they're no longer need to have like big positions. Like we need to escape from the euro, uh, we need to attack Troika, Ibestrendefinko. So they have more like a conciliatory position, more a reformist position, and they inherited in some ways the social democratic hegemony that has been in place since Felipe González. It's interesting that you talked about the radical origins of Podemos. In your, your longer essay that you've written in, in New Left Review, you talk about the ideas that kind of motivated, that it was quite kind of theoretically driven, the Podemos as a concept uh, originally, when it emerged kind of at the end of the, the Indignados movement during the Eurozone crisis. And it was influenced by the ideas of Laclos and Mouth, uh, what you call the populist hypothesis. 
Can you just talk us through that? What What is the populist hypothesis? What does that mean? And what are some of the problems and contradictions that that politics has brought for, for Demos? Just to clarify something that Tite said before, he mentioned a split between Pablo Iglesias and Inigo Rajon, and I think that's important to clarify, especially for the an international audience. Both were like working hand by hand. They were like the two first most leaders and theorists of the early Podemos, but then the worst they split. So Pablo Iglesias comes more from a workerist or Euro-communist theoretical tradition, whereas Inigo Rejón, which we consider the main theorist of Podemos and what we term the populist hypothesis, comes from the post-Marxist, Laclauan move, a strand of theory. And what we call the populist hypothesis is what Inigo Rejón mainly theorized after the Indignados movement. Just to recap, the Indignados movement in the 2011, all over the main Spanish cities in the square, people gathered there and they protested against the ruling of austerity in the aftermath of the crisis and the complicit uh, relation between politicians and the main economic elites. So the way that Podemos, and especially Rajon, read that situation was that there were like many different heterogeneous demands. The whole social structure was shattered, but there was no pre-existing organizational means to channel that indignation into the state realm or the institutional arena. So what they conceived was a very lean, very vertical organization, which that would put them as how Podemos was constituted in the first instance, which managed to capture all that indignation through vague slogans and not very clear-cut political stance in order to carry all that heterogeneous magma into the core of the state inst institutions. So the populist hypothesis read that paying at the moment was being like shattered all through, and there was just the possibility of building up a novel majority, like gathering from people who had been like placing in different locations in the social structure before the crisis into a new political artifact capable of inserting itself within state institutions and initiating from the top-down process of democratization and institutional transformation. That was initial Podemos Wager. Thanks. Moving on to the economy, the Spanish economy. Okay, you've written a lot about how the next-gen EU funds have been used to prop up the big players in Spanish capitalism, including big consultancy firms. Spain's also a country with very concentrated economic power in its construction and energy sectors, and they have a strong influence on the country's politics, as well as a weak manufacturing base, so highly relying on international finance and a lot of structural unemployment, high levels of precarious work. Have any of those structural issues been tackled by the PSOE Podemos government? And is there anything in Sumar's program which would tackle these issues, you think? There's something in the digital arena because I have participated, so I have been putting some propaganda there. But apart from that, I think that the problem is that neither Pablo Iglesias, neither Yolanda Diaz, from neither anyone in Podemos, neither anyone in the government uh, have problematized the European funds from the very beginning. So for them, we're fine. The new Keynesianism, post-Keynesianism was the lemma uh, of Pablo Iglesias in the Madrid elections after he left the government. So they were quite reliant on these funds, at least uh, when they talked in the public debate. They thought that really this money can be used to solve some of the Spanish structural problems. And even Yolanda Diaz uh, have put these funds like a new planification, like a new a green and digital planification of the Spanish economy. 
if you look to the to the money, I mean, you see that most of, of it went to Telefonica, to Indra, to Iberdrola, to the big companies of Spain. And if you look to the projects that they financed, I mean, they were quite crazy projects. Cars that can fly, <laughs> some stuff like that, that it's not going to happen. And it's not going to be driven to any productive industrial strategy. It's just going to be used by the big companies. This is also important because most of the money, it's inside the paradigm of the public-private partnership. So most of the money needs to be channeled to the market economy. So uh, the state cannot use the money to build a digital public infrastructure. So, for example, they cannot use it to build an alternative to Google or alternative to Amazon or an energy firm, uh, which is state-owned. They cannot use the money for that. So the only way uh, to do this is via the market. And well, I mean, if you look at the position that Spain has in Europe, so it's like a, a country from the periphery, an, an undeveloped country in the periphery of Europe. Uh, if you channel it through the, through, through the market, as in the last 25 years, in the similar way to, to when Spain entered in, in the European Union, you will face the same problems. The lack of competition of the Spanish industry, uh, you will also see the problems that your companies have to compete against uh, the United States firms, for example, Silicon Valley, most of the money that it's been used by Telefonica or Indra is, at the end of the day, is going to end up in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley has the cloud infrastructures, they have the digital infrastructure. So Telefonica will need to use the money to pay for them to launch any kind of solution that in theory will fix the, the structural problems. And also, we need to keep in mind that the big, big four firms have been preparing the reports of the governments to launch uh, these subsidies and also the reports uh, that these companies are using to uplift for that money. In the case of Deloitte, a client of Repsol, and also the, the Ministry of Energy Transition of uh, Teresa Rivera was hiding uh, Deloitte to create the grant. So at the end of the day, it's like a crazy way of giving money directly to the big businesses without problematizing the structural problems of Spain. And what about the, the, the general record of the, the Podemos Pesoli government? Because in lots of parts of Europe, it's held up as, as an example that social democracy can still exist. The inflation rate is lower in, in Spain than anywhere else in Europe, partly due to you know, a, a windfall tax and the, the cap on, on gas prices. Many people argue in the Spanish left, Podemos, Sumar supporters, that this is evidence that it was worth joining the, the PSOE government they've achieved things. I think the minimum wage has been increased by something like 45% since the government was introduced. How do you uh, view the overall record of the, the Podemos, PSOE government? In, well, in, in my view, the record is pretty, pos pretty positive. And to be honest, I'm pretty surprised that what we're deciding now is where the coalition government is going to be revalidated or not, and not whether the majority is going to be incredibly absolute or just on the very margins on it. And you mentioned like several fits, which I, I do think deserve recognition. And I respected that it would have been more than enough for this government to, to repeat its chances. You mentioned like Spain at the moment has one of the, the lowest inflation rates in the whole European Union through a cap on gas taxes and windfall tax on energy companies, new taxes to the wealthy are being implemented, minimum wages have risen for between 30 and 40 percent, 
uh, a new labor market reform was implemented, which very severely curtailed the spread of temporary contracts and overall precariousness, especially in the external layers of the labor market. So it, it, it is fair, like, and we need to be critical of the, of the government's strategy because there is some limits ingrained on it on what you can achieve by, from, from a coalition government in a peripheral Southern European country. But I think considering the scope of action that you would have presumed at the beginning, the legislative action is, in my view at least, right, considerably praiseworthy and way more ambitious than I would have expected at the beginning. Uh, I would have expected at the beginning that the Socialist Party would offer way more resistance to certain transformative measures pushed forward by Unidos Podemos than it ended up being the case. So my summary would be like, I'm very surprised that this was not enough for the government to consolidate itself on way stronger grounds than apparently had been the case. We also need to take into account that the Spanish position was a disaster after so many years of crisis and conservative uh, solutions to them. Uh, so it's fine that you have a labor reform, that you have some energy caps. Also, you need to take in mind that we are not relying on Russian gas. We are relying on... Morocco and Algerian gas, which also produces some big problems with Morocco, some big geopolitical problems with them, but that's another discussion. But overall, it's true that the social democratic government did a lot to improve uh, what Mariano Rajoy and the conservatives have been doing during the last decades, and especially after the, after the crisis. So that's good. But the problem is that they didn't take into account that after the next generation funds, and this has been said in Brussels by the European Commission, is going to return austerity. And you will need to introduce it in some ways or, uh, or in other ways. The Conservatives via Aznar, which was one of the neoconservative leaders, uh, most neoconservative leaders in Spain, has said that he wants to introduce a hard austerity again. And I'm sure that the PP and the Conservatives are going to introduce hard austerity. Maybe if the progressive government is re-elected, they will need to introduce austerity, even without calling it austerity. But you will need to return to austerity at some point. And the problem is that in the last four years, you didn't problematize Europe and you neither uh, problematize the structural problems of Spain. But you have been in the media telling that, oh, Spain is another country now. Uh, we are better than the rest of, the, of Europe. And this is not true. And in the next government, both uh, the conservatives or the social democrats will need to apply austerity measures. And you will need to do it because in the last four years, you didn't spend a minute problematizing the structural problems of Spain. So yes, there are advances, but you will have problems defending them now. So it's, you need to have into account that it's not like a short-term strategy of, oh, we conquered the state, we do our reformist agenda for four years, and then what? What, what are you going to do now? If most of the, the things that you could have done to attract the progressive voter and the hard left voter that is not going to vote in these elections because they really don't care now about the, about politics because they feel that Podemos didn't do what he was uh, saying to be done in the future. So uh, this is the, the big problem. Not what we have done, that it's good, but what could have been done ideally, done or problematized by a radical left branch in the government. You talk in the article as well about how if radical politics doesn't find an expression in the parliament, it will find it in the streets, or hopefully will find it in the streets. But 
isn't one of the difficulties that the left is facing in Western advanced capitalist economies anyway, is that those two forms of political expression, electoral politics on one hand, and what Anton Yeager has called associational life on the other, each need each other to help restore life and energy to them. And when one is weak, it's highly likely that the other is going to struggle to be strong, at least not strong over a sustained period of time. This is a problem of party lacking roots in the social base is not just a Spanish problem. Could we say that it's a, a much wider problem uh, that we're facing in advanced capitalist societies? Uh, I uh, fully agree with uh, what you've said. And I think if we look back the last decade of Spanish politics, there's been like a tension between those poles. So like the Indignados movement, there was like huge levels of social mobilization, also like different mobilizations against austerity cuts which lack any sort of institutional coagulation, which could actually imprint like a more long-lasting effects of all that level of social mobilization. Podemos is the foremost response to that. So like the initial strategic goal of Podemos is to transfer, to convert all that social energy into an electoral platform capable of introducing long-lasting mobilizations. However, the very way that Podemos was constituted and the very organizational form that it adopted ended up severing all those links with social movements and uh, grassroots organization. So what you end up seeing for the last 10, five to six years is a relatively well-consolidated political party with virtually no links to with ongoing social political dynamics and then political contestation dynamics. So obviously like the challenge is how to combine them both because without pressure in the streets and ongoing autonomous social mobilization, any institutional artifact, any political party will be dead from the beginning. And that's what I think what's happened to Podemos recently. However, without also without any means of institutional expression, the only end effect of social mobilization might, might be a nihilistic or bound to fail political experiment. How to get out those traps? Well, I think that's the key question we have to answer ourselves in the coming decade in Spain and, and elsewhere. Another of the problems was the way that they relate to the, to the audience. So for Pablo Iglesias launched something that we called like digital Stalinism. So he understood uh, the, the audience, the voters and the people as an audience that they needed to reach out via Facebook, via YouTube, uh, via the media, but they never built up any alternative organizational path. They didn't build platforms. Well, they built a platform, a couple of platforms for participation, but those platforms were a fake. I mean, people were voting. If Pablo Iglesias and Irene Montero, which is the, the Minister of Equality, if they should buy a chalet in Galapagar of half a million euros and stuff like that. I mean, like they used the, the radical democratic means for legitimizing themselves and their own strategy. They never opened it the party to the real organic intellectuals that were building popular power uh, in different neighborhoods. They didn't open it to the agenda of the alternative trade unions, uh, like the ones problematizing housing. And they never understood uh, this uh, problem and the, the underlying political economy of Spain. So they thought that Spain was easier to conquer the power in Spain that had what it's already the, the truth. And that's why they th thought that the social movements weren't necessary because they understood that the social movements 
uh, weren't able to have car power in this uh, in these last decades. So they thought that they were inefficient and they and they they really uh, positioned themselves and their political platform as the only way uh, to achieve this. So I think that in the longer future, Podemos will need, and this is something that both Podemos and Sumar and Errejón are acknowledging now, if they fail to be reelected, uh, they are already saying that they will need to go again to the militants, to the activists, to understand uh, what went wrong and to start to re-keeping themselves with uh, popular energy. Uh, but this is going to be problematic because this Stalinist vision uh, that I was describing, that uh, for them, redistributing political power and using the energy, the creativity of citizens to enhance the platforms and their strategy and their communicative action and their political strategy uh, wasn't important or it wasn't as important as having a YouTube channel to send propaganda to the people. And for them, that's the only way uh, to do politics because they, at the end of the day, they, they think that people is stupid, that they cannot think by themselves, that they cannot organize by themselves. And for sure, they don't think that publicly themselves and reform themselves or Podemos people in, uh, by themselves can do something to organize them, to connect them, to work with them, to be of something from scratch, really popular, not technocratic. And Yolanda is the last expression of this technocratic agenda uh, that Podemos has been launching. There's no activist now on the left that really wants to to spend his time on on Podemos or on Sumar. So now we really have a problem because people have other projects. They have been politicized via other means outside uh, the radical institutional left in Spain. And how we connect them, how we introduce them in a bigger social block in Gramscian terms, how this is built again is a question. But for that to happen, the leaders of the left need to recognize their limits, uh, their incapacity to defeat the social, both the social democrats and the conservatives. So the regime del 78, neoliberalism itself, and to think more creatively on, on how to achieve it. But I think that's very important to understand why Podemos has followed the course that it did. And that incapacity or that unwillingness to treat potential rank and file members, not as active citizens with capacity to self-organize, but as passive consumers of media news and, and media information. There's always be a heavy distrust of the potential unruliness or uncontrollability of political milieus that they could not easily towards subordinate to, their, to Podemos institutional means, which ended up, even though like they set up like several like means to increase like democratic participation through online means and they were like delivered conceived to to provide a means or an avenue to include like to promote participation among, among those who didn't have like the, the means or temporal capacity to actually be involved in traditional political activities party they ended up serving purely plebiscitarian means to yes to consolidate and to approve and to give a democratic semblance to decisions which were adopted invariably in Podemos Madrid headquarters by no more than 50 people, sad as it sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think the technocratic approach to willing the void by the center-left has also been witnessed here with the use of like citizens' assemblies <laughs> at the national level, which basically don't do anything. I mean, we are obviously in Scotland, we're really interested in the dynamics around independence. So it would be fair to say that very similar to Scottish politics post-2014 and after the 2017 referendum, 
the indie parties have been popular with the public, but haven't actually had any strategy or program for independence, which has led to stagnation and demoralization. And in Scotland, the SNP is a very rosy take on the EU and NATO. So is that the same with the independence parties in Spain? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the downfall, I guess it's similar to what everything is paying, although with a key crucial decision, this in Scotland, uh, there was a voting which would have, was recognized and legitimate, whereas in Spain, there was very hard state repression on the leaders of the Catalan independentist movement. That shouldn't uh, prevent us from signaling and reckoning with certain strategic inabilities or incapacities of the Catalan pro-independentist movement back in the days, but the fact that they had to face like a very harsh and very fierce uh, state repression with several of its leaders either forced to exile or imprisoned, it, it cannot be a sidestep. I think that's an element that is not in Scotland and, and that needs to be taken into account in, in the, any discussion of what happened with the Catalan independence movement through the last year. There's also here something that it's important and we didn't tackle in the in the piece. Uh, it's that it's not just a keen theme what explains Podemos, but also process Catalan the independent independentist movement. Uh, they really did something to break the regime in the seventy eight and the Spanish conservative hegemony. They really defied the notion of nation in Spain, and Podemos from the very beginning they understood it. Uh, they have an initial good strategy, problematizing it, giving the people, the Catalan uh, people, uh, the capacity to vote. And they, it was in the program. Pablo Iglesias was very present in the media saying that. Uh, but when the regional elections, before the first national elections to which Podemos was trying to succeed and win the elections and govern without dudes or paso against, against PSOE, etc., uh, suddenly... People from inside Podemos stopped thinking that this was an important thing to say. Uh, they lost a lot of people in Catalonia because of this. Also, later on, and now Sumar is not even recognizing the right to vote in Catalonia. Uh, and I think this it's very important uh, because now that the cycle, the political cycle, is now closing or arriving to the end, parties like Gatche Bildu in the Basque Country, uh, Benega in Catalonia, I know in Catalonia, in Galicia, and other parties in Catalonia are really starting to be more popular. They are attracting more, more voters. And it's some kind of expression that sovereignist demands, popular demands inserted in the notion of independency against the Spanish nation are getting popular again. And they are going to be popular in the next four or five years. And this is something that Podemos cannot tackle. And they cannot tackle because from the very beginning, uh, they thought that it was not one of the axes or one of the lines that they need to push to win. My feeling is that the the independence parties, all of them who are part of what they call the Republican alliance, you know, between the kind of left independence parties and, and uh, Podemos, have all had similar issues to Podemos, really, in their relationship to the, the Spanish state. Because they want to use their influence, because the minority coalition government has relied on the support of these parties to pass supporting laws, like the housing law recently, for example. They want to use their influence with the state to secure reforms, which they can partially take credit for. But they don't seem to have any strategy beyond 
winning these limited reforms in terms of pushing their own agendas. I don't really see in Catalonia or the Basque Country a, a, a strategy to get past the problem of the fact they don't have the right to national self-determination. What are they going to do to force that right? There doesn't seem to be any sort of clear thinking um, about that. How do you see the the independence parties and their role in the so-called Republican alliance? What do you think about about that? When you take into account that like the, both the Basque and the, the Basque and the Catalan independence movements uh, had put forward like two different strategies to secure their goals, and both have miserably failed. The Basque country with the extra institutional link of the Basque independence left, and all the experience with ETA. And then in Catalonia, with a more institutionally minded um, focus on securing central state legitimation to organize a referendum, um, both strategies have failed in their own terms. So how to get further than that, uh, I don't think that's anywhere on the agenda. Uh, I think there's a wide feeling of alliance between the Spanish left, the more broadly Spanish left, uh, regionalist, nationalist, and independent parties that there is just tight links between economic power and centralizing dynamics in Spain that foregrounds the, the terrain for a potential alliance. How that can actually transcend the current impasse they find themselves, uh, I have no answer to that, and I'm afraid they might not have any, any answer either. But it's important to take into account that both axes are relatively autonomous. The left-right and the centralization, the, the national question and the left-right question, they both interact, in, but they can do so in very unexpected manners. So, for instance, now you have clearly right-wing parties in Basque Country and Catalonia, from ranging from the, the Christian Democrats to openly neoliberal, who might be forced to vote for or support PSOE Podemos coalition because the alternative right coalition would include the hard right party Vox, who's openly calling for their illegalization. So those uh, alliances are shifting and there's different moments in time they can play in different manners and be declined in different in, in different senses. So the question is more, how you, do you achieve to launch a new Republican narrative or, or kind of problematize in the public sphere, given that Pepe and Vox or Pepe alone uh, will start an attack against Basque, Catalan, or Galicia, well, not Galician, but Basque and Catalan, and Catalan nationalist parties, left parties, uh, because he will need the conservatives like PNV, which are the conservatives and the right-wing nationalist party in the Basque country to govern. Uh, so it's more a question on if Vox arrives and they start attacking uh, constitutional parties and they start, and well, they return with the, the narration about the terrorist and Basque terrorist and ETA, and if they, they start to problematize that again, how they are going to answer and how they're going to build a counter movement uh, of different countries inside Spain and how this is organized. I think that we don't have an answer because neither the Basque and neither the Catalans and neither the, the the Galicians parties, nationalist parties on the left has an answer to this. I mean, they are organized, they collaborate themselves, but they rely on uh, Reddit in the I guess, social democrat government. But if not, then the, the discussion will be open. 
Yeah, just one comment, which is, I, th I think this is very, something that sets this pain clearly apart from the UK, is that the Spanish nation it has always been constructed in opposition to an internal enemy. Uh, the imperial memories and imperial nostalgia are too back in time before the process of national construction has been very incomplete. So what's granted like solidity and consistency to the Spanish national construction has always been the, ex the, the existence of one internal enemy within Spanish territory. In, in, since 1980s to 2000s, they were mostly the Basques and symbolized by ETA. And the 2000s has, has always been the Catalans, which is a dynamic which is altogether absent in the UK. I think there is no this level of antagonism between England and Scotland or between England, Scotland and Wales, as, as they're definitely seeing Spain. So you need to look outwards to look who's threatening the Spanish nation, but there is always within. Within the uh, within the internal body, and that's what gives rise to all these very, to an extent, bizarre political demands within political dynamics within the Spanish polity. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, Pedro. Going back to mentioned Vox, we hear a lot about it almost every day. There's a Guardian article uh, about the risk of Vox getting into power, and Gordon Brown even wrote one. So. Now, whenever the, the Guardian starts obsessing about something, it usually makes me a bit cautious and suspicious generally <laughs> when it gets into hysteria. Um, now, obviously, clearly, walks are nasty, far-right thugs love to spread hate, demonize the poorest, most vulnerable sections of Spanish society. Um, how much more than that are they? I look at Giorgio Meloni's far-right government in Italy, and it doesn't seem very interested in overturning the present order. She seems happy with the EU, NATO. The main concern seems to be taking away the rights of gay couples to adopt children and things like that. Is Vox in the Georgia um, Maloney mold or are we talking about a potential counter-revolution in Spain? Yeah, my view is that in the end, they are just, they're just a couple of thugs basically like very wealthy, very reliant on reconstruction dynamics with very well positioned within state institutions, but with not a very well developed strategic mindset nor any counter hegemonic plan. Basically there is no social there's no social awareness in Box. Box is clearly a polar of the needs. So like its capacity to overturn the political the system political system, I think is limited by it. It has nothing to do with uh Force National uh in France, for instance. But it is a more a spoken and thuggy representative of the pro-rentiership fractions of Spanish class and those more nostalgic of the old privilege that they inherited from the dictatorship. So yeah. I, I think they're not such a new experiment and they could have been way more dangerous than they are. If they have actually developed an awareness of their need to use a more protective stand or uh, at least uh, promoting a new, a no value of the same institutions to set up a new notional majority uh, rather than just uh, offering a purely ultra neoliberal program and loads of hatred towards LGBTQ, LGBTQ feminists and Catalan slash Basque citizens, which that's what the political problem, program basically amounts to. You need to keep in mind that Vox is not new. I mean, it has always been there, but it was inside the popular party. So it was inside the conservatives. And this is due to their uh, Franco itinerary. And so our transition was, <laughs> I mean, was democratic. But uh, I mean, most of the people from the Franco era 
they are still on the uh, uh, Spanish elites. And Vox is just an expression of that. Vox is there. I mean, they are not going to win elections. It's impossible for a fascist or radical right movement to win the elections in Spain because Pepe is going to be there. Is always going to be there. So it's more a question, as Pedro was saying, to legitimize the more conservative agenda on the popular party. So they are they are there to say, Pepe, hey, you need to attack uh, women, you need to attack the Basques and the Catalans, you need to attack the LGBT movement. And if you don't do it, I will win local or regional elections or I will increase uh, the votes I have to say you again that you need to do this. So it's more like for remembering the conservatives that they are conservatives and they are Francoists that to, to do something like Meloni or something similar. Spain is like this. Spain is in some ways is fascist and now it's being represented in the, in the parliament and they are also a populist movement and they are also using uh, the TV, social media to increase their electoral space and to make Spain turn to the right instead of turn to the left, which was the idea of Podemos. And they are doing this again uh, through propaganda, through fake news, etc. Yeah, I think one of the differences between the UK and Spain is the electoral systems, you know, because you have proportional representation in Spain, it means the, the electoral parties can be more fragmented, whereas in the UK, all these tendencies are just caught up in the main parties because it's really, I mean, UKIP has had an influence, but it's basically had influence outside of the electoral system. Let's just finish up by talking about the campaign. Um, what What is your reflections on the campaign and can you give us a, a prediction for the result? I mean, I think that conservatives are going to win. I don't think it. Most of the people on the left think about that when they did this kind of coalition. I mean, all the parties were trying to combine and to get all of the equivalent from the negotiations uh, and to get all the money all the leading positions, etc. So even in the left, they think that they are going to lose the government and they started to prepare for that. Uh, the campaign has been a bit crazy. Uh, I think that has been better for Peifo than for Vox and on the left for Pedro Sánchez than for Sumat. I mean, the strategy of Pedro Sánchez uh, with these elections was to destroy the people uh, on his left. So he wanted to get the voters from Sumar and Podemos and put, it, uh, put them in IPSOE and he will achieve it. Also, Sumar and Podemos itself was a bit, com I mean, they have some structural and political limits in their strategy. So when Pedro Sánchez started to say that the labor reforms and all the things that happened in Spain was due to his government, what can Yolanda Díaz say or what can Podemos say? Uh, well, uh, we want to uh, finish uh, with evictions. We want to launch a new housing law. Okay, I mean, you tried and you didn't manage. Uh, what are you going to say to the people? Another four years to do this. I mean, people know that so El, El Soe, social democrats aren't going to do it. You don't have arguments. So Sumar started with uh, some crazy Marketinian uh, policy proposals. Uh, some, some of them inherited by... Uh, by Piketty, uh, like uh, universal heritage. Uh, they started again with the discourse uh, in favor of the public services, health, education, and introducing like um, mental health in the public services. I mean, that's the only thing that they can do. And I think this is not enough uh, because they don't want 
or they can uh, radicalize themselves because it's, it will be weird, like some kind of cognitive dissonance for the voters. If now, after four years of being social democrats, they turn to leftist again. So it's not going to be easy for the voters to understand that. So they were a bit trapped. Podemos previous for, uh, well, energies and from people relying on them, but they are not going to grow. Uh, they are not going to move uh, to a better position. And for sure, they won't have the capacity to radicalize the debate or make PSOE more radical in his proposals. So it's a bit problematic for the left. I think that they, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that they, lo they lost the plot, they lost the strategy, they lost the narrative, and they are going to lose, no, uh, lose elections. I slightly disagree. I must say I'm way more optimistic. Um, by optimistic, I mean I'm not fully pessimistic. Uh, uh, just one little caveat, like the guide mentioned that uh, Pedro Sanchez focused its campaign on destroying everything that was at its left. Uh, I disagree. I think everything that was at its left made quite of an effort to this to destroy itself. And um, uh, just a quick mention on the electoral system that Matt ma mentioned. Uh, in Spain, there are like 50 provinces, which means that many, uh, all, all of them have the share of MPs. So like there are several of them who have only, only four, have like four or five MPs which means that you need to get close to 20% of the share of the vote in order to get political representation in them. So at the moment, yes, one, two, three percent, like going from 13% of the overall vote to 16% of the overall vote might mean that you might get political representation in all those several very tiny provinces, which could give a boost to electoral representation of any force. So at the moment, like Vox and Sumar are expected to attain between 13, 15% of the vote, if Sumar ended up reaching 17, um, Vox 13, that might mean that in all those provinces, as Sumar might manage to get the last MP, uh, not Vox, but that could overturn the elections. And on more general terms, uh, because of this dynamics, the, the often quoting dynamics of Spanish nationalism that we mentioned before, that means that Pepe and Vox, which is the only possibility for the right to send an upper coalition, are virtually non-existent in the Basque country and in Spain, in Catalonia. Which means that they would need to secure more than 50% of seats, whereas only existing for 80% of the Spanish population. That's definitely doable, but it's not such an easy enterprise. Precisely because of these dynamics, right-wing, openly right-wing, Basque and Catalan parties would be forced de facto to support a center-left coalition government and not to align with the right. So will the band box manage to get more than 50% of the MPs within 80% of Spanish territory? Uh, maybe yes, but I don't think that that's that obvious. And that's what makes me remain minimally optimistic today. So let's, we'll, we'll still have to wait till Sunday. I'm afraid to see what happens. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascot.com.